December 7th, Earth 2, 1941, a world very much like our own, yet slightly different, a date which will live in infamy, a world at war, the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. Following the Japanese sneak attack on Pearl Harbor, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt brought together the largest group of mystery men ever assembled to battle the Axis powers. Tales of the Justice Society of America presents The All-Star Squadron. And welcome back to Tales of the JSA. My name is Michael Bailey. And I am Scott Garner. What are you laughing about? Now you're making me laugh, and we're not even laughing about anything. <laughs> My wife's been cracking pecans this morning, and she finally got a whole nut out of one. So she's standing here. Oh, there's a filthy up. joke in there somewhere. <laughs> That's why it's stayed in. No, she's like jumping up and down, going, I got a whole nut. I got a whole nut. <laughs> This is episode... Oh, I'm just going to leave that alone. This is episode 43. Does that just not happen in your house all that? Oh, I'm sorry. I I couldn't resist, man. I'm sorry. (laughs) Insert your teabag joke here. Uh, This is episode 43 of the show going off the rails immediately. This is uh this is your Black Friday episode. Oh wow. Well it may be their Black Friday episode. I'm going nowhere near a department store on that particular day, so, so while you are all listening to this show and happily or maybe not so happily going to the mall or to the store, keep in mind that I got to work at five AM this morning and I'm not leaving till five PM. So yeah. Now I'm pissed. I'm not doing this show anymore. <laughs> Black Friday. I guess I'm just gonna have to have to find that out. I guess. I don't. I don't. I don't know yet what exactly the uh, peaks and valleys are. So it'll, it'll all be, it'll be a... interesting to know how many people are probably not going to Disney so that they can go shopping. Yeah, go stand in line. Well, yeah, they're just trading one set of lines for another. You get the Walmart ride at the end of the line that you're waiting in this morning. Oh, that sucks. What did I get? I got a TV cheap. Yay! <laughs> a $3 TV and a black eye. Awesome! Well, there, there there, was the year when my wife worked for Walmart that they had to call the police 
because there was an associate guarding a pallet of TVs that were supposed to go out at 5 a.m. when the, the sale started. And apparently the customers were getting so irate that they called the police because the customers were threatening the associate with bodily harm. Jesus. Oh, man. Here's a public service announcement for you. <laughs> Don't be an asshole on Black Friday. Don't be an asshole at Christmas time. <laughs> Jesus, people. God. Uh, what was the man crucified for anyway? Good Lord. I mean, but you and I are rather sensitive to that because we've spent so many years in the retail trenches. That... I'm just sensitive to people being assholes. <laughs> so uh, this week we, we, we have a rather um, a rather good issue to talk about. The we... pendulum swings the other way, folks. Yes, yes. Uh, so. You just want to take us right into that, or do you got sure. anything to share? No, not really. No, I'm 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 kind of ready and raring to get into this one because you know after uh, after the last three issues, and again, I'm sorry, this isn't me busting on Roy Thomas. I really do love the guy, but you know the the last three just just not my cup of tea. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But uh, this is where I think the awesome comes right on back to uh, All Star Squadron. So yeah, I, I'm uh, I'm ready to go here. We're gonna be talking about all-star squadron number 13 and in this case it's lucky 13 this is the september 1982 issue a not quite as ugly as usual cover by uh joe cuber on this one showing all of our heroes running towards us and uh there's uh photographs in the background um this is back in the days though when they just still couldn't quite pull off photographs in comic books so it looks a little looks a little wonky to me it's it's a little muddy it's hard to make out what some of the pictures are supposed to be but it's still neat it's it's like a collage of uh world war ii images so it's it's kind of cool um this issue is written by roy thomas as always penciled by adrian gonzalez guest inked in this one by mike DiCarlo, and i have to say i think he did a fantastic job original cover price 60 cents Roll call for this issue is Hawkman, Hawk Girl, Liberty Bell, Johnny Quick, The Shining Knight, Robot Man, Commander Steel, Firebrand, and The Atom. Story is entitled Firebrand here. <laughs> and Batman here. I love that album. <laughs> Story is entitled One Day During the War. So our issue begins at the world-famous Smithsonian Institution in Washington, D.C., where Hawkman is chairing the first official meeting of the All-Star Squadron. After some friendly banter between members and a quick status update on a whole slew of other masked men active during this era, such as Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, the Spectre, the Flash, the Seven Soldiers of Victory, and some others... The decision is made that the team needs to elect a new chairman since Hawkman is now an enlisted man and can't stay on full time. The winner, by clear majority, turns out to be Liberty Bell. Yes. While Liberty Bell is clearly honored, she also explains that she possesses no special powers to which the team is quick to point out that she didn't need any when she took out the rampaging Green Lantern or that fake uh, call Kukan a while back, or when she braved icy waters to help take out a Nazi U-boat. So she accepts, 
at which time Sir Justin speaks up and informs the group that now that things have settled down a bit, it's time for the time-displaced Brit to return to his native land to serve at the request of Churchill himself as the Prime Minister's personal protector. The meeting is adjourned, and Liberty Bell makes a cryptic remark to Firebrand about a private matter that they have to attend to. And so later, aboard a uh, uh, United States Army Air Force cargo plane, Hawkman, Liberty Bell, Johnny Quick, Firebrand, and Hawk Girl discuss uh, just how much has happened so far and in such a short span of time. Talk of the Pearl Harbor attack brings to the surface Firebrand's heated emotions and hatred for the dirty Japs that hurt her brother and killed so many others. The team is shocked into an uncomfortable silence by her statements. Upon reaching San Francisco, the Hawks depart and head straight back to Shiera's place for some nookie. Back on board the plane, Johnny Quick remarks how grand love is, to which Firebrand makes statements that sound like she's becoming kind of hardened-hearted now that the Shining Knight is out of the picture. In New York City, Commander Steele pays a visit to the residence of his old girlfriend, Gloria Giles, and is shocked to learn both that she is now married and that her father, Dr. Robert Giles, the man who co-created the bioretardant formula alongside Steele, has died. Gloria, not realizing that Steele is in actuality Hank Haywood, her former fiancé, blames Steele for her father's death because the old man suffered his heart attack uh, reading about the masked man in the newspaper. And that's because uh, he realized, seeing Steele in the paper, that Steele was Haywood, but Gloria doesn't know that. Sounds like a big old soap opera, doesn't it? So anyway... Uh, Steele, brokenhearted by this turn of events, tells Gloria that he actually came there to deliver a message, which is that Hank Haywood died on a secret mission abroad. She orders him to get out of her house and not to come back, to which he replies that she'll never see him again. Poor Commander Steele. Meanwhile, in Queens, New York, another metal man has woman trouble as Robot Man goes to visit his pal Chuck Grayson and finds him and Robot Man's old flame passed out on the floor, and Chuck's scientific equipment is running amok. Robot Man saves the day and his old girlfriend, and we get the standard superhero-y, she can never know my secret because, you know, I'm now a hideous in her monologue. So later, he and Chuck are discussing the progress Grayson is making on adjustments to Robot Man uh, that Robot Man has ordered to his uh, metal body when a man shows up serving Robot Man with a subpoena to appear in court on the charge of being a public menace. Robot Man responds by carrying the man back to his boss, Sam Slattery, Slattery, and flinging the guy at Slattery, telling him he'll see him in court. I love it. He's uh, living up to the public menace accusation. Yeah. <laughs> so Serve me with a warrant, <laughs> Sabino, why don't you? <laughs> Take that. So Shining Knight accompanies uh, Winston Churchill back to Great, Great Britain by plane, and they arrive just in time for the nightly blitz. Sir Justin charges at the Nazi planes astride his flying horse and helps turn the tide of battle. Back in San Fran, Johnny Quick runs up and into a military hospital carrying Firebrand and Liberty Bell in his arms. 
They've come to visit Firebrand's brother, Rod, who was the original Firebrand, and he was injured in the uh, Pearl Harbor attack. After a cheerful reunion, the book hits its one sour note with a very preachy and, I feel, historically inaccurate portrayal of Rod being shocked and horrified by his sister's quote-unquote racism and tells her a story of how a, I believe this word is pronounced, Nisei, is that right? Nisei or Nisi. Uh, Nisi? I've never... Okay, it's a, what it is is it's a second-generation American born of Japanese parents and how one of these folks sacrificed himself to rescue Rod and his buddy from the airstrip at Pearl Harbor during the attack. Firebrand is made to see the air of her ways, and she promises to play nice with and speak highly of the enemies of America from now on, because, gosh, they're people too, you know, and uh, everybody holds hands and sings Kumbaya. No, they don't really, but, you know... It, it was the one moment of this book I really didn't care for. But what they do do is they uh, they go out and they perform some feats to uh, entertain the recouping, uh, recuperating soldiers. Uh, the ending to this otherwise fantastic issue is saved by a little uh, epilogue in which Al Pratt, the Atom, meets his girlfriend at the Jefferson Memorial in D.C., and Pratt draws inspiration from the words of our third president. Next month... Of all people, the Justice League. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. So what did we think of this one, Mike? Um, oh, wait, I have, I have historical notes first, Yeah, right? just, just a few. Um, the early pages of number 13 are used to strengthen the series concept and to work in some personal bits. Roy Thomas believed, as Stan had often told him, that you can get away with having a bunch of superheroes just standing around talking for a few pages if you need to because they look interesting in their costumes. <laughs> uh, Marquis touts the new movie The Fleet's In, starring Dorothy Lamar and William Holden. Uh, there is a Sabatini Brothers furniture sign on a truck, which is a takeoff on a real New York company called Santini Brothers. And Raphael Sabatini, author of swashbuckling novels such as Captain Blood, Scaramouche, and The Seahawk. Uh, the scene between the lawyer and robot man is adapted from Star Spangled Comics number 15. Further expansion on that story would come in All Star Squadron number 17. Uh, like many Americans in the 1941-42, Firebrand gets hot under the collar about the recent sneak attack, spouting the J-word. Though DC policy was generally to avoid that term, Roy writer Roy Thomas convinced the powers that be that an exemption should be made in this case in the interest of authenticity. In mid-January 1942, Churchill returned to England aboard a Boeing flying boat, which he piloted for a short time on the hop to Bermuda, a British possession. That's... wow. <laughs> we own Bermuda. <laughs> uh, in Invaders number 4, January 1976, Churchill's flight was the cue for U-Man, a Nazi takeoff of DC's Aquaman, to try to kill the Prime Minister. Of course, the Submariner was there in a couple of panels later to stop him. In All-Star Squadron number 13, Churchill persuades the Shiny Knight to return with him as his personal bodyguard and a living incarnation of Great Britain's illustrious traditions. After all, Sir Justin had been a Knight of the Round Table. After arriving over London, the Knight uh, fights off German planes, art by Gonzalez and DiCarlo. And that's pretty much it. What did I think of this issue? I really liked it. I like these 
downtime issues, for yeah. lack of a better term. Uh, I, I always like when I was reading the Superman books in the '90s. Right after you would get done with like a big storyline, like Time and Time Again or uh, Panic in the Sky or something like that, you would always have an issue or two where everybody just kind of regrouped and the seeds of the next story were being planted. Um, I don't dislike Mike DiCarlo's inks, but I really missed Ordway in this issue because the first page look great, looks great. The Shining Knight on page three looks kind of weird. I don't know if his head's too small for the body or what, but it was great to see all of the heroes talking about the heroes that weren't there, giving you the feeling that the, there was a bigger world out there than just what we were seeing. Right. So I really dug that. I love the fact that Liberty Bell was elected uh, chairman of the all-star squadron even though in in that one panel on page four she looks like a little girl wearing a mask that's too big for her face yeah um (laughs) i like that too the only thing that that i won't say bothered me but it definitely occurred to me while i was reading the story is um you know this was the same era in which wonder woman Arguably, the the second most powerful member of this team was the friggin' secretary. So I kind of wonder how historically accurate is it that a woman becomes, you know, the the leader of the team. And that's not me being sexist. That's me saying, you know, during this time, would that really have happened, you know? But I can forgive it because I really like Liberty Bell, so... I actually had in my head this little bit of dialogue when they were trying to convince her why, you know, it's like, well, did you need superpowers when you took out Green Lantern? Did you need superpowers when you took out that fake guy in Mexico City or to swim the English Channel? Did Lincoln need superpowers to free the slaves? Did Washington need superpowers to uh, fight off the British? Did Jesus need superpowers to raise the... Oh, wait. (laughs) Okay, just everything but what I just said, and convince yourself that you don't need special powers. (laughs) Um, I do like the fact that there's a little bit of a callback to the second issue of All-Star Squadron with everyone flying out west. Yeah, Uh, That's kind of cool on page seven. Um, George Lucas would say, "This, this is the part that rhymes. You know, everything rhymes. You know, you know what happens in the first trilogy, and then it happens again here. It rhymes. So, I watch too many um, <laughs> interviews with George Lucas. Uh, I, I like the fact that... Uh, Jake Lloyd would play Hawkman. <laughs> well, I find Hawkman kind of annoying to begin with, so yep, that's there you rather go. appropriate. I like the fact that Roy Thomas takes seven panels to say, yeah, Hawkman and Hawkgirl are going to get to the fucking... Yep. So, <laughs> the um, do you think she lays eggs? I'm just there was, asking. There was a joke about that on an episode of Justice League Unlimited that I rather liked. <laughs> um, the Commander Steel scene I liked because it's actually continuing his story. Yes, and that's why it's better to focus on the little known characters. You can focus. You can continue Commander Steel's story. So if you read that series like we did. Uh, unfortunately, for like that last issue, which sucked, um, 
you you get to see more of what's going on. You get to see more of the melodrama. Though I do, I, I was, I'm always amused when this happens. Like on page twelve, where her her husband comes out and goes, "Well, answer me, Mister, or I'm calling the police before I wade into you myself." Yeah, good luck with that, pal. Let me let me ask you something. With I mean, don't 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 spoil it. But I'm just curious. Now, I remember what happens to his, whatever it is, grandson, I guess. And, you know, when when Justice League of America wrapped up just before the crisis, or actually it was just after the crisis, wasn't it? You know, where where so many of the the members were kind of taken out. I remember what happened to him. But do do we ever know what happens to this guy? I don't know. I can't remember. I, 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 I... I don't remember slash haven't read that that era of Justice League. Right. So I have it. I just haven't read it yet. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, me too. Um, I liked the Robot Man scene too because, again, it's a secondary character that you can follow and create a little, like, seeds of subplots that can be uh, paid off later. My only problem is that the art on page 16 looks more like a who's who entry God, than you're right. a yeah. story. Yeah, and it's like the art is really strong up until that uh, up until that page, because I really didn't realize that he had gone somewhere else to toss the the process server until I read the page a second time. You're right. And but seriously, doesn't that look like you should have like a like a, a a picture of Robot Man like posing beside it, and this is all the. the yeah, t- it does look like it could easily be a. Uh... Uh, who's who entry? You're absolutely right. Um, really like the Shining Knight scene. Mm-hmm. Um, I just didn't look up who Captain John Cecil Kelly Rogers. I, I did actually. Um, I, I didn't read the whole thing, but I, yeah, he, he was a real person. He was basically he was the pilot of the plane at the time. But the website uh, I've got, um, I'll send it to you, and we maybe we can throw it into the show notes or something like that. But uh, there's a great picture of Churchill actually at the the um, yoke or whatever you call it, you know, at, at the controls of the plane, and uh, I like that. But yeah, this I don't know why really they gave this guy an asterisk. I mean, you know, it, it's just the fact that they were pointing out that hey, look, we've got the real guy, you know, that really did this flying the plane. It's like, oh, oh, okay, I guess that's cool, <laughs> you know. Um, the weakest part of the issue is the firebrand scene, mm-hmm. and I think you went right before we started recording. Actually, back to the bins, since we record these both on the same day, you know, you said, "Well, I have one problem with it," and I was like, "It's probably the same problem I have with it," and it's not so much the retroactive political correctness, though that does kind of bug me a little bit because I, I have a feel, you know. As uncomfortable as it may make you, sometimes you have to examine an era for what it was. Right. Uh, you know, that's why I don't like all these country songs that are like, I remember everything was better when I was a kid, and we all hung out on the front porch, and institutional racism was the you know was the way to go, and stuff like that. Because <laughs> they never talk about that. They never talk about you know what living in the South in the fifties and sixties and seventies was probably really like. So, you know, you, you having a a, mem, a cast member, and they would do this later in Young All Stars that had had like a hatred of the Japanese only feels realistic to me. That right. there would be you know one or two you know they're real people. Yes, they're superheroes, 
but they're also people with their own foibles and opinions. And the fact that it's a switch that turns her from hating all of the Japanese to feeling bad and crying and taking her mask off inexplicably, because they never actually show that, bugged me on a story level, because it felt like it happened too quickly. Like, yeah. if this if it had been played out over several issues where it was her dealing with it and eventually coming to it, but basically it's like, I hate the Japanese, don't hate the Japanese, I hate the Japanese, don't hate the Japanese, I hate the Japanese. Well, you know, a Japanese person saved, saved my life. Oh, I'm a fool. It's kind of like Anakin right. going to the dark side in episode three. Oh, don't, don't start. <laughs> In the uh, I give you the movie. In the movie, it seems like it is yeah, pretty much novel, a, in a light switch. Yeah, sense. But, that's why I like the novel better than the movie. See, sometimes. for me, it's it's not. It, it's more that, and I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna have to ride the razor's edge on this because there there are certain of my buddies in the podcasting arena that I, I frequently give flack to because I feel like they they put way too much politics in their podcasting. And sometimes I do it just for fun, just to kind of rib them. And then other times I rib them because it really does kind of irk me. So I don't want to project my own politics too much into the shows that we do. However, this is one time where that's the crux of what bothered me in this sequence is, yeah, the thing with Firebrand, you know, instantly coming around, you know, a couple panels, you know, basically by the end of the story, she's seen it almost feels like an episode of a TV show. You know, by the end of the episode, you've seen the error ways and you're going to be a good person from now on. Oh, God, it's so cliched and cheesy. But that wasn't really the part that bothered me so much. What bothered me so much was the reaction of everybody else and then using the word racism. I bet you that racism wasn't even a word in 1942, or at least it wasn't the, the hot-button word that it is today. And racism isn't the correct word to use anyway. No, it just isn't. In this instance, you know, racism has nothing to do with it. There is a long tradition, and you can decide for yourself whether you think it's a sad tradition or not, but there's a long tradition in wartime that goes probably back to the first time two human beings ever punched each other of making up names for your enemy, you know, trying to, you know, some people say it's a, you know, it's an attempt to dehumanize or, you know, to desensitize yourself from thinking about them as a human. I, I think it goes for no further than, you know... You're on the the playground and somebody wants to call you a name to to try to irk something out of you know to to start shit basically, mm-hmm. you know. So what really gets to the core of what bothers me in this is the same old trope, and you hear it even today. Well, you know, not all Japanese are bad people. You know, it was this handful that bombed Pearl Harbor or whatever. Well, you know, not all Arabs are bad people. You know, they're not all, you know, uh, suicide bombers. You know what? That argument really pisses me off. It just does. During wartime, that's not the time to have that discussion. That's not the time to, to have a studied examination of whether all Japanese people are bad and evil and should be destroyed or not, or whether all Arabs or all Americans or all Martians or whatever the hell your enemy is. You know, deal with that crap when the war's over. Then you can shake hands and you can all be buddies. I mean, we get along fine with the Japanese people today. Are they all evil? Are they all demons from hell or whatever they were portrayed as as World War II? No. Clearly, we understand 
understand that today. But at that time, when you're trying to bomb these people or shoot these people or win the war against these people, that's not the time for those kind of discussions. And that's why it pisses me off so much today that we're in the midst of, of a very dire situation in the middle of a war against a very clear enemy. Yet everybody, you know, constantly wants to say, well, you know, all such and such are not this and that. Well, yes, they are because they're our current enemy. So that's my position on the thing. We can all get along and be friends and sing Kumbaya when the war is over. Well, you know, that's fair, though. I, I, I mean, the, the thing is, is that I don't, I don't like doing the political discussion either. In fact, right. I, was, I was actively, and I kind of feel bad about this in retrospect, but I was actively trying to avoid that in the Action Comics Annual number 3 review. Mm-hmm that Jeffrey and I did over on From Crisis to Crisis because I wanted it to be more about the story and not about the politics of the piece. Right. Uh, but at the same time, you know, sometimes it's there's there's a there's a 800-pound gorilla sitting in the room and you and you got to kind of talk about it. Right. And here Roy Thomas, he puts it out there, you know, and he and he puts in his thing and and, and you you mentioned that it's it's like a TV show. It's exactly like a TV show. Mm-hmm. It's exactly like any episode of, uh, you know, a sitcom, and, and and what I have to say, in, in defense of this story, actually, is that, um, at least it's a main cast member, right? Because sometimes on those, like especially in sitcoms, they bring in a character to be the bigot that sees the error of his ways, so that none of the main cast members have their images sullied. Get sullied, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But here, it's Firebrand, and it's played very heavy-handed, and it, it resolves itself way too soon, but at least it's somebody that we've come to know and care about, so we can be like, yo, whoa. I mean, it's like it's like if you're in a conversation with somebody and every like a bunch of people and everyone's joking around, and suddenly someone drops the end bomb, right? And you're just like, whoa, <laughs> but where the hell did that come from? But again, see that that's the difference right there is that you know if, if this had come down to something like that, then I can totally see where everybody. You know, pig piles on Firebrand, and, and it's like, you know, what the hell is your problem? In this instance, I'm sorry, but it, for me personally, Roy Thomas failed because I find the reaction of all the other All Stars to be the inaccurate reaction. You know, yeah. when she uses the word Jap, and they all look at her like, oh, you know, you, you know, what, what, is, what the hell's wrong with her? She shouldn't be saying that. I find that to be extremely historically inaccurate. You know, I mean. It that was the term that was tossed around. It was everywhere, from cartoons to radio to newspaper. It was everywhere. That was what they were called. I mean, come on. And, and this is by no means a disrespect to the people in the in the southern United States that listen to the show. I live in the southern United States, but it would be like doing a a a, a show set in some backwoods redneck town in Georgia or Alabama where somebody uses the N-word and everybody gets upset. Exactly. Yes, exactly. Especially if it was set in like the 50s, you yeah, know? Where, like in the 50s and 60s, where nowadays, yeah, you don't say that kind of stuff and everyone kind of gives you the, the, the hairy eyeball, and rightly so. Right. But it, 
it wouldn't have been that shocking. It, it you would have been the odd man out, or if you would have been like, "Why are you using that word?" Well, it, yes, exactly. You know, it, it's common parlance, and 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 your thing about the racism, I totally agree with you on that. Because what is being evidenced here is the new definition of racism. Because originally, racism was the belief that one race is genetically superior right. to another. Right. This is bigotry. Right. Plain and simple, flat out, textbook bigotry. And the fact that both words have been fused into one meaning bothers the living piss out of me. Well, it's another one of those examples of people tossing around terms that they truly don't understand. You know, exactly. they don't really understand. You know, they don't know the context or or whatever. And, and it's a terrible thing to call somebody. You know, if you call somebody a bigot, people are like, well, "What the hell is that?" If you call them a racist, and suddenly, you know, they might as well have been touching little kids, right? And, and, or something like that. So, I'll I will totally agree with you on that, and I will agree with you that except in just a slightly different way that this is the one failure of the issue. Right. But overall strong, especially that ending with the Adam where we get to see him with his fiance, because this is the series that made me like the Adam. So I like seeing these scenes. Right. And that's all I got for this one. He made a, I meant to look this up and then I, I just got lazy, I guess, but as he's running, um, into the scene on that epilogue, he says there's the new Jefferson Memorial. I, I meant to look that up and see what that was all about. Does that mean that that the thing was new at the time or something had happened to it and it had been refurbished or something? Or, or what? I'm going to have to look that up at some point because uh, I guess I'd always just kind of thought it had, <laughs> it had always been there. You know what I mean? Construction began in 1939 and was completed in 1943. And actually, this is a bit of a anachronism because the statue of Jefferson was added in forty-seven. Oh wow! So interesting. Maybe it's the real Jefferson. Maybe he's like you know stuffed and mounted right there. <laughs> but but he's got a hair trigger, so don't. Uh... Yeah. <laughs> Good callback, sir. Good callback. I figured you would like that one. <laughs> that was brilliant. You didn't miss a beat on that. I love it. There's a whole bunch of people going, what the hell are they talking about? <laughs> There's a bunch of, whole bunch of Jonah Hex fans that are going, hell yeah! yeah. Uh, I really only had, uh, well, actually I only had two notes, believe it or not. Um, really? one of, uh, yeah, yeah, one of them we I already... I was the chatty Kathy on this well, one. It's, it's like we were saying last, you know, um, oh, it's like saying back to the bins. You know, when, when the issue's awesome, I just have less to say about it. It's, it's the sad, sad truth, but... Uh, well, one thing I can throw out there, I, I think I like the art in this issue much better than you do. Um, yeah, you know, I, I kind of feel bad, but it is what it is, really. So. Yeah, I will grant you that it's a little stiff, but I think one of the things I like about I really, you know, any any shortcomings in the art with this particular issue, honestly, I'm going to lay them at the feet of Gonzalez because I don't think it's the inker. I, I think Mike DiCarlo is a great inker. And one of the things I like about it is uh, it reminds me an awful lot of uh, early issues of Booster Gold, which DiCarlo inked. So, you know, I, I've always liked that I'll stuff. I agree with that. I, th I think it just illustrates that, as much as I hate to say this because I'm not trying to speak ill of the man, uh, of Gonzalez, but Ordway was the main artistic 
oh, absolutely. influence on this series after Buckler left. See, I think this issue proves that because yeah. you know you 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 know when when or when Ordway was there, you saw more Ordway in the art, and now that DiCarlo is here, I see more DiCarlo in the art. So I think they were taking somebody. Well, wasn't Gonzalez kind of new at this time? He might have been. I, I I don't know his history, so I don't want to talk out of my ass. Yeah, so me speak. either. But they may have been shoring him up. But I don't, that's a guess. Like you say, I don't I don't want to disparage the guy because it's not like I hate his art or something. Oh. I, I think he's a fine artist, you know. Um, <laughs> my one uh, one big note here was um, page five. I've got panel seven, but it's kind of weird because there's that inset panel. So counting the inset, it's the it's the large panel in the middle of the page. Hawkman's just got to get a plug in for his nth metal every issue, doesn't he? <laughs> every issue, he's got to remind people. Oh, by the way, did you know I got some nth metal in me? You know, my nth metal. Um, if it lasts more than four hours, I have to call the doctor. So, I hope by the end of this series, somebody asks Hawkman, "Hey, do you do you have some chewing gum?" By no, but I have this nth metal. You know, it's just stuff like you know. You you can just imagine him being just you know really annoying the hell out of these people about his nth metal all the time. I like the art on uh, Gloria on pages 11 and, 11 and 12. She reminds me of one of the... Um, I can't remember which character it was, but one of the supporting characters in Booster Gold. I definitely see the same artistic Trixie? style there. Yeah, may, maybe may have been Trixie, yeah. I like, uh, like you said, I like that we're getting uh, a little bit more advancement in... Um, in um, Commander Steele's story. Well, it was the thing that, that made me fall in love with the series. Right. This sort of storytelling right here. This is the kind of storytelling I've, you know, over the years as I've gotten older as a comics fan, this is the kind of storytelling I, I've really come to like more is the character stuff rather than the big fights and the big battles and <laughs> saving the world. And I love all that stuff. Don't get yeah. me wrong. You know, but it really comes down to these downtime issues are the ones that ultimately make the biggest impression on me these days. Well, it's sort of like something that um, I don't know if it made it into the episode or not of Comics Monthly Monday because I haven't had a chance to listen to it yet. But Chris Honeywell and I were talking about the Hulk. Mm -hmm. And I I was saying something to the effect of, you know, I love all the psychological examinations of Bruce Banner as a person. And I and I like seeing you know his struggle and his you know him battling his inner demons. But at the end of the day, you all you know you also want to you want to see Hulk throw down. Right. Want to see him fight somebody like the Absorbing Man or the Abomination. And Chris made the point where of well, that's the entire point is all of the psychological stuff is a lead up to the action. Right. And that's kind of the same thing here, where. If if it was wall to wall like like a Liefeld image comic from 1993 where they were just fighting and fighting and fighting and it was all just action 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 with nothing to make you care about the characters then the action itself becomes meaningless right you know the action is then a release of it's just like you know you're you're, you're seeing these characters struggle with whatever problem they're struggling with and at the end it's just it all comes out in a vicious fight scene. Right and and that that to me is the the balance of uh, of good superhero comic books. Absolutely, 
Yeah, because if you just get them, you know, standing around or sitting around talking all the time, then that, you know, that doesn't make for an exciting book either. Well, so yeah, been from nineteen ninety five. I like uh, I like the stuff with Shining Knight, and uh, it's funny because uh, I was reading this whole part, and I was like, hey, we were just talking about this not long ago. You know, the fact America. You know, why isn't he over in his own country? So here he is. You know, he's headed back to Britain. I like that. Hopefully we'll get a little bit of uh, of that action. You know, I like him jumping right into uh, you know defend his homeland from the Blitz and all that. That's pretty cool. You know, and after us uh, talking about how the thing with Firebrand feels like a TV show or something, yeah, I, I totally could have gone with like the last page being Billy Batson coming out and giving the moral of the story at the end of it. You know, it's funny that you mentioned that because Rachel uh, has been watching. The Ghostbusters cartoon from 1996, <laughs> not the real Ghostbusters. This was the filmation Ghostbusters. Oh, with a big ape. Yes, and it's a filmation cartoon. So at the end, somebody comes out and gives the moral. <laughs> and it's usually the talking TV. I'm uh, trying to remember if Star Trek did that or not. You know, the the filmation Star Trek, and I don't remember. But that would have been hysterical to have Kurt come out at the end and be like, <laughs> "Let me tell you about what we, re- we learned here. We learned that here, I didn't kid. have any sex with green women." I was just going to say that, you know, green women are perfectly acceptable to have sex with, just as much as white and black and yellow and brown and. You know, <laughs> that would have been awesome. The only thing I'm going to make fun of with Filmation doing that, because as cheesy as I think it is now, I do think it serves a good purpose. But like on She-Ra, sometimes it wouldn't have anything to do with what you're talking, what they were talking about in the episode. Yeah, like this whole episode where She-Ra and He-Man have teamed up to defeat Hordak once again, and at the end they get together. Let me tell you about talking to strangers. Where the hell is this coming from? <laughs> Now remember, kids, ice cream doesn't have bones. And you're like, what? What the hell are you talking about? It's like something your uncle tells you that you don't... Yeah. <laughs> don't bite into that ice cream. It's got bones. <laughs> then you're traumatized. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> well, that's all I got on this one. Yeah. I think you want to... You just want to move on to Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics. Mike's Amazing World. Um, pretty interesting month so far. Looking at it, uh, we've got an adventure comics that apparently has a Superman and uh, Superboy and the Legion of Superhero and a Shazam thing. Now you can't tell by looking at this JPEG, but that's one of those digest size issues. That is when Adventure Comics went to digest sized, which was kind of interesting. Oh, was it with that issue? It was around that issue that it went. To oh, okay, that. I've got this one, but I can't remember if I've ever read it or not. But I know that it has uh, Don Newton on uh, Shazam, which is always awesome. For those of you that picked up the recent DC Showcase animated DVD. The DC Comics Presents number 49 has Captain Marvel and Superman teaming up against Black Adam. Yeah. So I, I haven't seen to, that yet. Is that any good? I have no idea. I haven't seen it either. Um, I I ended up buying the Hulk, the Incredible Hulk movie last week instead of buying that. 
Tor uh, Tor has that. I noticed it the other night, but I, I didn't. I didn't. Yeah, but with certain things, I want to see it on my TV. I want to want to sit down on my couch with like maybe a, a soda or a bottle of water or you know some libation and you know some popcorn or whatever, and sit down and have it be an experience. So get uh, kill the kids. Yeah, I know what you mean. You got the Justice League and Fury <laughs> of Firestorm. What did you just say? <laughs> I wondered why you let that one just slide right by. I said, get drunk, yell at the kids. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, my my uncle. Ke- Never mind. I'm not even going to get into that story. Oh, I don't know if I want to hear that. <laughs> Just stories that start off with my uncle. I'm I'm leery of those kind of stories these days. <laughs> oh, especially if it's somebody you just met. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you never know where that story's going to lead. Um, got a got a great Firestorm cover by Pat Broderick with the JLA coming after him and Killer Frost. I was missing that issue for a long time because I had one, two, and three, and then I had I think it was the very next issue. So I, you know, there's all this build up to you know he's going to fight the Justice League, and then I didn't I missed that issue. I was like, ah, I wanted to know what happened, you know. Though, as much as I like Pat Broderick's take on um, Killer Frost, I'm sorry. I, I, the first time I ever saw that character, she was drawn by, drawn by George Perez in Crisis on Infinite Earths. Oh, yeah. She was hot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, Dave Cockrum, Justice League of America cover with Abnegazer, Wraith, and Gast, guaranteeing that I will have no interest in that issue. <laughs> I don't like those characters. I never have. Oh, I like them. Who did the into? Oh, he did the. Oh no, that's cover. Who did the? Let's see, Carmen Infantino. Wow. Well, and it's nineteen eighty-two, guaranteeing I have no interest in that issue. Oh, harsh. I'm sorry. He was drawing with a ruler by that point. Yeah, yeah. Your his post Star Wars stuff doesn't doesn't particularly thrill me. Yeah. Sergeant Rock Annual Number Two, because this is when DC was rolling out their annuals. That's a cool looking cover for a Cubert. I actually like that one. Got the Creature Commandos and Weird War Tales. Uh, there's another shout out to Chuck Sheffy because he he loves Sergeant Rock, and I think he's a fan of the Creature Commandos as well. Uh, Batman is apparently mad at the sky. <laughs> Batman number 351. Damn you, Sky, I'll get you if it's the last thing I ever do. Well, you know, if I lived in Gotham City, I'd be mad at the Sky, too, because it's red all the time. That Jonah Hex looks interesting. Yeah, I wish I could remember it. <laughs> well, it looks like those guys are trying to take advantage of her, and you got the two guys uh, hiding that he doesn't see, and I feel really bad for all three of them. Yep, they're about to have a really bad day. That's a nice uh, Ross Andrew cover, by the way. I, I had forgotten that Ross Andrew drew so much uh, Jonah Hex. I, I refer to that as the Ed Harris effect because in the in the movie The Rock, uh, when he and Michael Biehn are having that like really heated exchange in the in in, in Alcatraz. And he's just like, you know, give that order. I will not give that order. He goes, you're down there. I'm up here. You walked into the wrong goddamn room. <laughs> and that it's I, I carry it over to the Incredible Hulk TV series, too. <laughs> you know, like you messed with the wrong damn guy. So, um, I'll admit that 
when I was reading the new Teen Titans for the first time, this whole Black Star storyline really had n- held no interest for me. It's a Black Black Fire, isn't Black it? Fire, you're Black right. Fire, yeah. I don't know why I called her Black Star. No, it's it's easy to confuse. You know, it's funny because I'm going to talk about this more next time around because number 24 was uh, my introduction to uh, the the Titans because of a special guest appearance, but we'll talk about that next time around. <laughs> um, Saga of the Swamp Thing number five? Eh, I don't remember that being a... No, it's not a particularly good issue. That's yeah, the one that's <laughs> stupid doppelganger things. Yeah, this is where that title started to kind of go down the toilet. Got a Gil Kane drawing Vartox to look like Hector Hammond on the cover of Superman number 375. I like that cover. I really do. It's it's a pretty decent cover. I'm just not... Like like I've said in the past, so I'm not going to harp on it, I'm not a fan of Gil Kane in this era, so... Hmm. Um... DC Comics Presents Annual Number One. (gasps) Yeah! We should talk about that sometime. (laughs) Like before we talk about this one, even. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Legion of Superheroes looks kind of cool. You said this is the Great Darkness Saga, right? Yep. When I was in Books a Million yesterday, getting um, Superman Earth One, the oversized hardcover of the Great Darkness Saga, has come out. It looks pretty sweet. Um, I have all the issues, so I don't know if I want to buy the hardcover, but... <laughs> I've got that issue of Brave and the Bold, and I think it's in my unread box, Batman and Adam Strange. I'm not much of an Adam Strange fan, so that's probably why I haven't gotten around to that one yet. I like that uh, the Cthulhu creature from Watchmen and his little brother are attacking uh, Green Lantern on the cover of Lantern 156. (laughs) His brother. Got a really messed up looking uh, composite Superman on the cover of World's Finest number 283. I like that. Who who drew that one? That is... (gasps) Buckler. I, I seriously, I asked that with with honestly not knowing. I didn't realize that. That's cool. You know, why I didn't recognize it because it's, it's uh, Gia Koya on the on the inks on that one. But yeah, that's cool. I like the composite Superman. He's just one messed up dude. Marvel Marv Wolfman's pet super team that he tried so many times to really get taken off. The Omega Men guest star in Action Comics. Is this that issue that ends? With Superman critically injured and being like, like kidnapped, I think it is. It's around this time. I remember yeah. that vividly. So I think it's this issue. Yeah, I like this one. And by default, because I liked the issue so much, for the longest time, I was quite the uh, Omega Men um, apologist until I came to the realization that everybody else had instantly, which is they kind of suck. <laughs> nice. Well, I mean, truthfully, I mean, the Omega Men cool because I I don't think they're really all that. I did I thought they were cool when I was a kid, but they were cool because they hung out with Superman. You know, it's like anybody's cool when they hang out. Well, except Jimmy Olsen, he's never going to be cool. But <laughs> nice, well, he does suck. So. <laughs> he sucks. Uh, neat Deadshot cover on Detective Comics number five eighteen. I like that one. I like that he's aiming at Bruce Wayne through his scope, but Batman's about to kick him in the back of the head. So I don't know how that works exactly, but it's pretty cool. Man, Gil Kane did a lot of covers this... Uh, yeah, he did that Superboy cover. It's like, what is that, four now that we count? Let me see. We've got Superboy, Action Comics. What was the other one? Green Lantern. Uh, uh-huh. Um, Super, what was- Superman, Superboy, Action Comics, Green Lantern... 
I thought he did something else, but I could be wrong. Oh yeah, Superman Family right there with with uh, Supergirl. Yeah, man, that's what like six covers. And the final ah. issue of Tales of the New Teen Titans came out. I like that. I like that a lot. Wonder if they were trying to go with like a a consistent look to the covers of the Superman titles, and that's why. Ah, that's all a the Superman covers. That's a good theory, sir. Yeah, you're absolutely. Joe Staten did the interior on. Yeah. Enter Actually, the Omega Men. Yeah. Is that the Omega Men's first appearance? Uh, no, no, no. They first no. appeared in Green Lantern. Green Lantern, yeah. During Marv Wolfman's ride. Yeah, but you're right. They were there. He was. He was really trying to uh, push them, prop them up. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, if I remember right, it's not not long after this that they got their own title too, isn't it? Yeah, but that became like a dire- that was a direct market direct. book, like almost from the beginning. So. Was that the first direct book? I'm trying no. to remember what the first... Was it Legion? Maybe Legion was the first one. I think Legion and Teen Titans came out roughly the same amount, same time direct market. Yeah, I can't so. remember. We'll, we'll, we'll get to that, though, and it's, I'm sure as we go through these, we'll, we'll discover the first... Some good stuff next month, too, but we'll have to... Just, or, I mean, uh, next... Uh, well, next month, but next week for us. So we'll save well, that. We, we've gone week. through the first year of All-Star Squadron, sir. Man... That's uh, that's pretty cool. That is cool. We've made the first leg of our journey. Now, next time around, folks, um, we will not be talking about All-Star Squadron. We will actually be talking about Justice League of America, number 207. You're like, huh? What? Why? Well, it's because that's uh, the first chapter of the uh, crossover tale that we'll be talking about. And I remember this being very good, but I also realized something that I didn't... I've never read all the chapters of it, so I'm very it's curious. It's a decent story. Do. Get ready for the Don Heckart. That's okay. That's alright. I can suffer through it. As long as the story's awesome, I can suffer through it. <laughs> you want to knock a few emails out? Let's do that. Alright. First up, we've got one from Billy K says, I like the new format. Oh, it says another great episode. This was written on June 25th, so (laughs) powering through the email. (laughs) (laughs) I like the new format of doing an issue of All-Star Squadron with a Huntress storyline, though I wish you would have done the elsewhere in the DC Universe for the Wonder Woman issues. I do have a bone to pick with Michael. Hey! Over his snarky comments about answering me answering the questions you brought up about Power Girl's sexual orientation and answered in much the same vein as it was brought up. It is all right for him to talk about Shiny Knight Sword or Johnny Thunder riding Thunderbolt bareback like a 10-year-old and not for me to mention something in a letter, letter like a 10-year-old, even the whole discussion in the first place about whether Kara was gay or not was kind of childish. What? Do not get me wrong. I enjoy how you guys do this, and the so-called childish moments are part of what I enjoy about your show. I grew up in western New York like you guys did and speak the same language, if you will. You know, I honestly don't remember that, but you gotta you got to realize that sometimes I'll just talk out of my ass. So um, <laughs> Sometimes. So, Billy Kay, I do apologize. Um, sometimes I get like that. Sometimes I'll act like a five-year-old, and then I'll be like, no one should act like that. I don't know why I was trying to do a impersonation of what's his name from the uh, Mythbusters, but that's okay. 
Uh, Billy Kay continues, I really do love Jerry Ordway's work on this series, and as we go along, he really saves the Adrian Gonzalez issues. Oh, harsh. These are the only stories that I have seen with Gonzalez's artwork that I ever actually enjoyed. I do think it is kind of stupid the way they change Japs to Nips in these issues, and then that Japanese people would... uh, and think that Japanese people would find both offensive. But hell, I do not take it offensively when someone calls me a kraut. So what do I know? I hate political correctness and especially hate retroactive political correctness. Amen, brother. You know, it's really funny. I I was discussing this with some guys at work uh, recently, and I said, you know, really, even with some of the ethnic slurs, the... The, the the slurs for people of a of a paler complexion seem to no pun intended pale in comparison to those uh, directed <laughs> towards African Americans or the Japanese or the Chinese. But that's that's just me. I mean, uh, you know, if someone called me a Mick, I don't think I'd really get all that upset. But there was a time, especially like for example, you know, New York City of the early part of the uh, 20th century where it was really divided amongst, uh, you know, where you're from lines that that sort of stuff would probably have been more offensive. So Right. Uh, Billy Kay continues again. Roy Thomas created the female firebrand because DC editorial would not allow him to use the old quality character of Wildfire because readers might confuse her with one from the Legion. Now, why would they have two Green Lanterns, Flashes, Superman, and so on existing at the same time and worry about fans confusing two different characters of two of different gender living over 10,000 years of part? I do not know. Like I said, <laughs> keep up the good work. Peace, Billy Kay. And again, Billy, I wasn't really trying to, uh, to offend you, and I do apologize if I did. Uh, I'm not here to bother people or, you know make them upset and like i said i I, it's just a quirk in my personality where sometimes you know i'll sit there and go (laughs) duty or and then sometimes think god i I do not like scatological humor in any way shape form or fashion and those who do are idiots so it's just me dude i'm sorry (laughs) yes you are (laughs) thank you (laughs) jackass (laughs) I still have no problem whatsoever throwing you under the bus. <laughs> it's <Let's> greasy <laughs> down. <laughs> All right, moving right along. We've got one here from our old buddy Stan Johnston. And he writes in about episodes 32 and 33. What the hell did we talk about in 32 and 33? I don't remember. Right, he says, hi, guys. He says, I'm glad that I wasn't alone in being confused by the whole bomb defense formula thing from All-Star Squadron number two. Oh, God, yeah, I remember that. Same for the bit where you had light bulbs without electricity and L-tracks with no trains. All respect to Roy Thomas and with uh, the understanding that he has been uh, he is being true to the Golden Age stories. But that was just stupid. In my opinion... He should have taken advantage of the opportunity to clean up some of the silliness of the Golden Age stories. I completely agree with you. Joe Kubert is one of those guys like Gil Kane and Steve Ditko, whose art I have come to appreciate only as I got older. When I was younger, I absolutely hated seeing Kubert's name in the credits of anything. But over the past 10 years or so, I have really started to enjoy it. Even the stuff I cringed at years ago. I agree with Michael that his style is better suited to war comics 
Uh, but I'm not as averse to his superhero stuff as you two are. You know, it's funny that he brings up Gil Kane and Steve Ditko, because those are two people whose artwork I appreciate, but only on certain characters. Mm-hmm. Like, I love Ditko's Spider-Man, and I like his Doctor Strange. I cannot stand Ditko on the Hulk. Yeah. I mean, and it's the same with Gil Kane. I'll read Gil Kane Green Lantern stories, but not other things. It's really strange. <laughs> I mean, I've never read a single Ditko Starman story because of the art. And it's weird because, like, Ditko Spider-Man, I mean, it's it's iconic. I mean, you know, to many people, that, that is Spider-Man. Um, you know, that sort of... You know... This is one of those things, and, and I'm not picking on Stan. I hope he doesn't feel like I'm, I'm singling him out or anything. It's just the subject comes up in this email is why I'm going to talk about this for a second. But, you know, I'm hearing this a lot lately, and you can you can kind of fill in the blank, you know, when it comes to the artist's name. You know, it can, it can be Kirby. It can be Cuber. It can be, you know, a lot of these old-timey guys. It can be most any artist, really. And I get this a lot where... I hear, you know, well, you know, I didn't like him when I was a kid, but as I've gotten older or, you know, when you get older, you know, you'll, you'll come to appreciate. And, you know, to a certain degree, it, that sounds kind of patronizing to me. You know, it, it's 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 kind of condescending without intending to be condescending, I think, because it's like, look, dude, you know, I'm 42 years old. I've been reading these damn things all my life. You know, I, I don't think I'm ever really going to warm you know, past the point where I'm at right now. Do I hate these guys? No, I don't hate them. I mean, you know, when I see one that I really like, you know, a cover or, or an issue that they did or whatever, I'm quick to point it out. It's just there's something about it that, you know, nine times out of ten just doesn't work for me. You know what I mean? And and Kubert's one of those guys I just look at and shake my head and go, I don't get the legendary status thing. I just don't. You know? I, I think... I think in most cases, people are just trying to say, hey, I get what you're feeling, but this is how I feel, because as I got older, I don't I don't think in, in 90, I don't think in 100% of the ca- cases, it's people being patronizing. Uh, no, no, but it just, I don't know. I, I know, I see your point on that, because I, I kind of feel the same thing, is that, it, you know, when I, when I have an opinion, and someone says, tells me why I shouldn't have that opinion, and it basically comes down to, well, you just haven't figured it out yet. Right, exactly, yes. I mean, that pisses me off. Yeah. Like, to no end. It's just <laughs> like, was... no, asshole, I've got a brain in my head. Yeah, I think I was trying to be too uh, too nice and too, uh, you know, politically correct about it. But yeah, you're right, That that you hit the nail on the head. That's exactly what it comes down to. Is, I... Well, you know, one day you'll, you'll see the light. And it's like, no, dude, I don't think I will, because it just looks like crap to me, you know? But I will make, I want to make it perfectly clear, I do not think that's what Stan was doing here. So this is nothing against right, him. right. Well, that's yeah. That's why I preface my statements. Yeah. I'm not. I'm not picking on. I'm not singling him out. It's just the subject comes up in in his letter. So we're still cool, Stan. <laughs> he continues. He says, "I always uh, liked Hawkman in concept much more than in execution. I <laughs> mean both. Almost every attempt at a solo Hawkman series has fallen flat. Although I have heard good things about the Jeff John series, but I have no firsthand knowledge. Maybe I'll put that on my to-do list or not. I would say do, and this is yeah. coming from somebody who really thinks Hawkman sucks. The the Jeff John's Hawkman stuff was awesome. It really was. And again, 
Uh, this is from somebody who doesn't think Hawkman's very cool. But that was good. It was just well-written. I mean, it, you know, there's a lot of characters out there that I think that, you know, you can look at and think, wow, he sucks. But, you know, you give them to the right person, you know, or, or creative team or whatever, and, and there's, you know, there's inherent potential in everybody. So, you know, Hawkman was just looking for the, the right thing to come along. Mm-hmm. Continue. You, you read that series, right? Yeah, I, uh-huh. I enjoyed it quite a bit. I dropped it soon after he left, so I missed the entire Gray Palmiati run. Mm-hmm. But I stuck completely through the Simonson Chaken run. Oh wow! Um, I, I enjoyed was... most of it. I, I really did. Palmiati and Gray came after them. Came after no, it was because that's when the series became Hawk Girl. Right. Before yeah. that, right around Infinite Crisis was when Palmiati and Gray Yeah, okay, that's what I was thinking. Yeah, I read it up until um, Infinite Crisis, and I don't think I have many of the the issues after it became Hawk Girl. I've gotten what I could get a hold of, but uh, I just I just haven't read them yet. I, I've heard it's not very good, but that's you know that's just what I've heard. I haven't actually read any of it, but, but yeah, I read it straight from the first issue right up to uh, Infinite Crisis and thought it was one of the best books they were putting out at the time. Honestly, anyway, he continues uh, just to throw my two cents on press coverage during World War II era. I think reporters back then were more willing to accept at face value what they were told by the government. There was more trust and respect. Only in later years, when people finally figured out that the government would lie, did the party line begin to be questioned. This is what I gather from long-ago conversations with my dad and uncles, who all served in World War II. I'm not terribly fond of Plastic Man, but liked him a lot in All-Star Squadron. I think I disliked him... Uh, because most of my exposure to the character uh, has had him played for comic relief. I remember a very bad animated series from the late 70s or early 80s and comic stories written by, I think, Martin Pascoe. Uh, just general silliness filled with bad jokes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I like the new format introduced with episode 33 with an issue of All-Star Squadron paired with a co-feature of related material. I do hope that you will continue mentioning at the end of the podcast which tangential material will be covered on the next episode because I like to have read the material before listening to the podcast. We try to remember to do that. We just we fail horribly sometimes, but we do try to remember to tell you what the next thing is going to be. It's the second letter that said they liked the Huntress Co. feature. And I know. It. Not that I want to bring it back. I'm just saying it's kind of... At some point, what you know, I, I hate for that stuff to fall by the wayside, you know. So at some point, we're going to have to figure that out. And what we'll probably do is we'll use our uh, overflow valve of back to the bins and do specials or something. But we'll, we'll figure it out, guys. This week. Yeah, I mean, we we haven't forgotten about it. It's it's just one of those things where we we just made a decision. We both came to the the realization that we both weren't comfortable with how it how it sounded. It was breaking up the flow. Mm-hmm. You know, to to you know, use a technical term. <laughs> but, you know, it, I mean, this show currently it's set in you know 1942, and then you know after a break you'd suddenly come back and be in 1982. It just felt awkward to me, and it just wasn't really working. 
Um, he says, I'll close with a quick comment on the Huntress story you covered from Wonder Woman 271 through 273. I don't have a problem with the ending where Grundy basically falls down a hole and washes out to sea. Was it lazy? Yes. But honestly, what other way is there to have ended the story that would have worked? Uh, Grundy is way out of Helena's league on the power scale, so in any ending that had her win a physical confrontation would have, wouldn't have been believable. The only way to end it was to have Huntress outwit Grundy. When you get down to it, he, should, he never should have been used as the villain anyway. Someone more equal would have been would have worked better. Later, guys, Stan. Well, I agree with you, but you know, at the same rate, every once in a while, I love it when you see a quote unquote ordinary guy like Batman go up against like a Mazo, you know, and you're like, because mm-hmm. that those are the holy shit moments. Those are like the you know, <laughs> how in the world is a dude like Batman gonna survive against a Mazo? And when he triumphs, it's just that much cooler. So, yeah, I agree with you that she can't stand toe-to-toe with Grundy, but I would have liked to have seen her actually take Grundy out somehow, using her wits and her brains and whatever's on her utility belt. I would much rather have seen her literally knock him out somehow or other, just other than tricking him into falling down a well and washing out to sea. I think that's kind of a cheat, because she didn't really beat him. No, I, I, I agree with that. Or at least I will for the sake of this discussion. I may disagree with that later because I like to change my mind. But um, last email for the episode because I'm running up against the clock, folks, so this one's all my fault. Um, it's from our good friend Jose A. Rivera. I love that guy. He's a great guy. Episode 33, A Couple of Divergences. Hey, guys, a great episode dealing with both the All-Star Squadron and the Huntress backups in Wonder Woman. However, I wanted to do something different and talk about two points you brought up in the show. About the change Robinson made in The Golden Age. I didn't have a problem with it at first, as it seemed an interesting idea. Without spoiling it, because I really want you guys to cover it in a future episode, the fact that they changed it from the Spear of Destiny and the Holy Grail to what they did was an interesting choice. They brought up a good idea, but it was relegated to a flashback mentioned. It didn't affect the story other than mention that what was the real quote-unquote reason why the heroes couldn't invade Germany. I really wish they could have done more with this story as it had possibilities. Michael mentioned the Warner Brothers store, and God, how I miss it. Amen. When I was a kid and my school went on a trip, we went to a Warner Brothers store where they had a great DC section. They had the entire first wave of the Man of Steel action figures and pegs. They had the PVC Lobo statue and a multitude of Superman shirts. When I got my first job, the store was near its end. I remember picking up a Superman shirt, a Green Lantern beanie doll, and some keychains. You really don't know what you have until it's gone. I remember all the DC merchandise they had there, from cookie jars to shirts to glassware to lithographs and everything in between. The worst part is they go for a lot because the store is gone, so finding any awesome from them is hard. hard. I remember paying $40 for the DC UA, DC uh, Universe Animated porcelain picture frame at a convention. To this day, I'm looking for the massive jigsaw puzzle they had with all the DC characters (laughs) on them, but it's rare. My wife and I just put that together for the third time the other day. (laughs) I have it. I bought it. It's an Ordway picture. Mm -hmm. It's Ordway drawing the DC comics as it was in, like, 1998. Yep, I remember it. All the heroes. And thank you, Alan Leach, for sending me the poster. Uh, in in the bag of stuff that uh, I was just gonna say, wasn't yeah, wasn't there a poster to that? Oh, he sent that. Oh, you lucky bastard! 
Well, because I was about to take the thing to work and scan it on our big scanner. <laughs> but no, liter- literally, my wife and I dug out some puzzles, and I'm like, let's put this together again. And Because and, we, we went to a puzzle kick a couple weeks ago. Uh, and we literally, like three days ago, finished putting that together. And it's such an awesome puzzle. I'm sorry, Jose. I'm not trying to lord it over you. I was just like really – it was kind of interesting that you mentioned that right around the time that I put it together again. Because I bought it right around the time my wife and I started dating. It was one of the first things we did together. Uh, so um, I really See, want- people are always telling me what a great guy Michael Bailey is. See, folks, he's he's really kind of a prick. I tell you guys <laughs> this all the time, and nobody believes me. But you're hearing it for yourselves. I have it, and you don't. <laughs> <laughs> See, I told you. <laughs> now, if it didn't have as much sentimental value, I would send it to him. But uh, that's got a lot of – because literally the first time I put together is when Rachel and I first started dating, and she'd be over at my apartment, and she'd piss me off because I wanted to put it together, and she would sit there and put pieces together just to annoy me. <laughs> Uh, he's uh, Jose continues, I really want it because it has Jack Knight in it. Yes, it does, standing right next to Fate and Lobo. Hmm. But imagine how great it would be to have the store still around and have all the DC merchandise at our disposal. It would make going to Lennox more fun. Yeah, no kidding. Um, well, there was another one that had it, too. Well, they had one in the underground. Yes. And then there was one at... Um... Ah, crap. This is Atlanta for those just joining. Gwinnett? Was it Gwinnett? I think it might have been Gwinnett. It's one of the malls that sucks now because it doesn't have anything in it, but, you know, just a bunch of stupid women's clothing stores. But it was one that, at when they had it, it was awesome. And I want to say it might have been Gwinnett, but I forget. But uh, we used... I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say, I, I love that place because this will tell you how long ago it was. You know, Scotty, my oldest boy, he's 14 now. This is when he was an infant, and all of his infant clothes that I ever bought came from the Warner Brothers <laughs> store because there was a great one of the of the DCAU Superman holding up the earth. Mm-hmm. It was great. And I remember, you know, when he started out grow his clothes and my wife started to get rid of stuff, I made sure to snag that out of the donation pile or whatever it was because I'd you know, I, they just, you know, they had sentimental value, but also I knew that they probably would have some sort of monetary value eventually when the store folded. When I was about 14, 15 is I think when they, they opened up near where my aunt Josie lived. And I remember going there the first time and you walk in and you go through like the Warner Brothers, like the, the Looney Tunes section. Mm-hmm. Which I like Looney Tunes, but I could give a crap about Looney Tunes merchandise. Right, and then you go through like if a new movie's coming out, it's where they would have like the the T-shirts for it. But then you look up, and there's that giant Superman mm-hmm. bursting out of the wall, and it's just like ah. Mm-hmm. And I sat there and watched it over and over again because they they had like TV screens, like a wall of TV screens all showing the same image, and they kept showing the Batman Returns trailer. And I just kept watching it. They had an in-house commercial for DC Comics that was really cool, too. And all, the only thing I can remember about it now is that it had Dark Side in it. I don't remember anything else about it, but it was really cool. And uh, that my, for my birthday that year, Aunt Josie got me a long-sleeve shirt that had Batman Returns written on the, fr- uh, the front. And on the back, it said The Bat, The Cat, and The Penguin. And, yeah. I, wore, and I wore that thing out. And uh, 
I, one of the reasons why I need to lose weight is I, my mother, my stepmother got me this really nice denim Superman button down, uh, with the logo on the pocket and the, the old school Superman logo on the back still have that. And the Superman keychain, the symbol keychain I have, I bought back in 1996 (laughs) and it's been on my keys ever since love the Warner Brothers store. Yeah, I did too. God, it was I really... so great. Because being a DC guy, you know, I, I'm on a Marvel kick right now. I'll admit fully to it. So if I was like anywhere that was selling a lot of Marvel stuff, I'd be like, oh. But being such a DC guy, and, and, and did you ever look through the artwork? A little bit, but not as much. I wish, in retrospect, I wish I had done it a lot more, but I didn't because it would depress me so bad because it was way out of my budget, you know. But, yeah, they did have some great stuff. The one the the, the store at Lennox had that I always wanted was a Barry Kitson Superman page. Wow. I remember they had a – at the one I used to go to, and I really wish I could remember what mall that was. The one I went to, the the one piece I kept coming back to over and over again was an Ordway piece, uh, but I can't remember what it was from. But it was it's for it was from right in the general era era that you guys are talking about on FCTC right now. But I I don't remember exactly what it was from. But they had that major two, and then everything else was like cells. Uh, but they did have one or two page, you know, actual comic art yeah. pages that were pretty cool. And then they had the really expensive shit that you never even looked at. Yeah. Why bother? But they had t- they had glasses, they had steins, they had cookie jars. God, they had everything DC related. I keep thinking that you know they'll they'll come out with some you know some new version of that or whatever, but I haven't heard anything. You know, the, the Disney stores have pretty much closed up in this area too. So yeah, but they're they're making a comeback though. They're the they figured they basically they got their shit together and figured out what what the you know the formula of success or what they think it is anyway. And, and they're that starting formula to, is from October to December, sell the shit out of Nightmare Before Christmas. Yeah, that's one of them. Yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, I mean the Disney store that everybody remembers hasn't existed in a long time, but the, that from what I'm hearing about the ones that they're building now, they're much more a callback to the original Disney stores, which essentially all the Disney, you know, the original Disney stores were was your standard Disney resort gift shop put into a mall, you know, and that was brilliant. And you could buy everything from, you know, original art to posters to T-shirts to whatever, and somewhere along the line, it just mutated into, you know, the same crappy plush and T-shirts you could buy anywhere else for cheaper. And somewhere they lost, you know, they lost the magic that they'd had. But that, you know, anybody that remembers what the original Disney stores looked like, that's kind of what the Warner Brothers store looked like. It was it was essentially the same thing. I loved that place. But, you know, they, they both suffered from the, the same problem, which was their shit was way too expensive. That was yeah. the number one problem with both of those is that I think they forgot that you weren't in a theme park where you were trapped and, you know, if you wanted to buy a Coke, you had to spend six bucks for it. You know, you were in a mall and, you know, you could you know, you had a choice from, you know, paying a ridiculous amount of, amount of money for their cool Superman shirt or walk down the hall to, you know, some other place and get, you know, just, you know, Superman shield shirt for, you know, 10 bucks or whatever. So yeah. I think that's what killed them. They priced themselves right out of business. 
Alrighty, this uh, issue of All Star Squadron, like the rest of them, has never been reprinted. Ah, <sighs> DC, what really? is wrong with you? Well, somebody might be gumming up the works. We don't know. So, thank you for listening to another exciting episode of Tales of the Justice Society of America, hosted by Scott H. Gardner and Michael R. Bailey. If you like this show, check out Back to the Bins, where Mike and I talk about random back issues from the past. You can find that at www.twotruefreaks.libsyn.com. Scott has another podcast that he hosts with his childhood friend and former personal masseuse and fry cook to Oprah Winfrey, Chris Honeywell, called Two True Freaks, which, like Tales and Back to the Bins, can be found at www.twotruefreaks.libson.com. Mike has a few other podcasts that he either hosts or co-hosts because he loves the sound of his own voice as well. The first is Views from the Longbox, which is Mike's solo show and can be found at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com. Then there's From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, which Mike hosts with Jeffrey Taylor, which can be found at both www.supermanhomepage.com and www.fortressofbaileytude.com. Scott and I have gigantic egos, and we love to hear from the listeners. You can reach the show by writing to Tales of the JSA at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and come back next week for another installment of the Tales of the Justice Society of America. We will always remember how they died for liberty. Let's remember Pearl Harbor and go on to victory.